Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Good afternoon. Hello. Good to see you. Okay. Uh, my staff have been giving me a hard time all week because it's I keep messing up and I, I don't catch myself, and that is this is deep in history, and apparently I keep saying this is deep in Scripture. So I apologize to you listeners if I've confused anyone, because we do have Deep in Scripture program, we have Deep in History program, we have now a new program hosted by my son John Mark called Deep in Christ. We have a program called On the Journey with uh, Matt Swaim and Ken Hensley, and we might be having a few other ones. So, But this is Deep in History, and Monsignor and I have been slowly slodging our way through this wonderful book by St. Irenaeus against heresies, and we're, uh, we're picking up today where, where we, we put a pause on last week at chapter 11, section 1, but at the end of last week's pro program, we remembered that we wanted to do something. So, Monsignor, let's pick up where we said we would begin. Right. We had, Marcus, we had a, uh, an email from one of our participants, uh, Ellen, and she uh, pointed out the answer to a dilemma that I had come across in chapter six, um, section one, and it's at the very top of page 321. Um, and I, I remember asking you the question about what's going on here. And I'm very grateful. She pointed it out. and. Actually, there's a lot to be learned from this, so I'm glad we're starting this one. Okay, so let me just read this first sentence up here. Now, they who would fain be more knowing than the apostles, the Gnostics think they're smarter than the apostles, write it thus. They're translating here, or they're quoting Matthew 11:27. 27. No one hath known the Father but the Son, nor the Son but the Father and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Okay, that's what the text says. And these Gnostics go on to interpret it as though the true God were known by no one before the coming of the Lord, and that God who was announced by the prophets, they deny to be the Father of Christ. And um, Ellen wisely pointed out that what the Gnostics did here was change the tense of Matthew um, eleven twenty seven. It was in, no was in the present tense, and they turned it into, the Gnostics turned it into the past perfect tense. Um, and their point was that, um, that knowledge of God, the true God, was utterly unknown until the coming of Jesus. Um, therefore, they, they basically trash the whole of Old Testament scripture that way. And um, Irenaeus points out here, he's got, them, he's got them cold. They changed scripture. Yep. Yep. In the paragraph um, before, Irenaeus translates it correctly. No one knoweth the Son but the Father. And the and just so the audience can hear, no one knoweth the Father was what actually Matthew says in yeah. the English in the Elizabethan English translation, and right. what the Gnostics say is no one hath known. Yeah. All right. And I had Monsignor ask him if he'd look up the Greek, and it's the it was the present yeah, we, tense in the Greek. Yeah, it's a present tense. So um, Irenaeus, he's got him cold on this one. They cheated. Well, and here's what is fascinating about this, folks. This is why, is the, the original was in Greek. And at the time Irenaeus is writing, the New Testament is still in Greek. The Gnostics, whatever 
copies of the scriptures they're using are in the original Greek or copies of it, unless they've messed it up, are, are in the Greek. And the only way the listeners would have ever heard the New Testament read at this point in history would have been in the Greek. Now, in our day, when we're using English translations, Spanish translations, the Latin, whatever it is, um, we can fake it if we want to come up with a new English translation because we can say, well, that's what was in the original Greek because our hearers would only hear it in English. Mm -hmm. But the Gnostics couldn't get away with that unless they literally said it different, the Greek. So a listener who had their New Testament or knew it could say, wait, time out. That's not what was there because they're just dealing right. with the Greek. So they changed the tense so as to make their argument that the patriarchs and the prophets knew nothing of the Father. Um, and uh, and the apostolic tradition right from the beginning believes that Christ in his pre-existent state, the Son of God, accompanied the patriarchs and prophets and revealed all this to them. So it's a it's a titanic issue. Yeah. Yeah, this is not exegesis, right, Monsignor? This is called eisegesis. Yeah, the, yeah this is eisegesis. This is yeah. eisegesis. In other words, the Gnostics had their theory. And mm -hmm. so beginning with their theory, they changed the scripture to match their theory, not the other way around. Yeah, and not only, even maybe worse, they not only did they read into the text some different interpretation, but they effectively changed the text. Changed the word. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, I've, we were, we were talking beforehand, and I, I know of a modern, another example of that. I don't have it in front of me, but the the NIV translation, which was the, the New International Version translation, which is a very popular evangelical translation of Scripture in English, and it was actually towards the end of my Protestant ministry, that was one of the, the translations I always use, though I generally use the RSV, because I felt the RSV was more literal. The NIV was a little more, uh, it sounded better from the pulpit sometimes. It, it, it was mm -hmm. very, it was nice, but one thing that I found in my journey to the Catholic Church as I was studying Scripture is I found that the translators of the NIV did something which would be akin to what was, what these guys did. And oh, uh, and what what the oh, I'm trying to find it here. I'm sorry. I should have got it going. But the word tradition in the New Testament comes from a Greek word, and make sure I'm saying this right, Monsignor, paradosis. Right? Is that right? Tradition, paradosis. Paradosis, uh -huh. tradition. So that word paradosis is found many times in the New Testament. And there's really no reason um, that it shouldn't always be translated tradition. Okay? Mm -hmm. However... If you look at Mark 7, 8, well, the one good example of that is 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, where Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the paradosis. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. That's paradosis, and that's translated traditions. However, if you go to Mark 7, 8, it says, in my RSV translation, says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. It's paradosis. Paradosis. That's, I'm looking at the Greek. I wish I had my NIV in front of me because they don't use the word tradition Maybe you, can, maybe you can look it up. I may be able to get it here real quick. I'm here. pretty sure they translate it as the... No, no, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. 
in this verse, where the, the word paradosis refers in a negative sense to tradition, they use the word tradition. Uh-huh. But Monsignor, if you could find the NIV in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, why in this sense would the translators of the NIV translate paradosis as teachings? I know they do. There's a little footnote in the NIV, and it the little footnote says or traditions. All right, they'll they'll put it in the footnote, <laughs> yeah. but but generally when it's read from a pulpit, you're not getting the footnotes. You're getting what it says. So they, the the translators of NIV, in the use of the one word paradosis, make a distinction a distinction between the negative use of paradosis, which of course is tradition, like those Catholics have, or when yeah. it's positive, then it's teachings because that's what the non-Catholic Christians would hold to. So you see, there's an example of eisegesis in the translation of the English, just like the Gnostics were doing, mm-hmm. that Irenaeus is pointing out. They're, they're using their theology to shape the way the scriptures are being translated, or even in the case of the Gnostics, are being manipulated, Yeah, as you were saying. Excellent. And Ellen, thank you for pointing that out. <clears throat> yeah, that was very helpful. We really, really would love to hear more things. Um, I'm going to point out one other thing, Monsignor. I, I came across this morning when I was doing my morning devotions. I happened to be reading 1 Timothy, and I, I came across a scripture that reminded me of something you had mentioned last week when we were talking about Arianism and, you know, the Arians' problem was they they believed that there was a time when Christ wasn't, mm-hmm. that there was a time in history when there was only God the Father, and that Christ, Jesus Christ, was a created being. And, and, and the, the problem was, as we said, that really the Gnostics, I mean, the Arians— which are not around yet during Irenaeus' time, but are going to come later, were really sola scriptura folk. They, they, they held to Scripture. They, they, they took Scripture seriously. And the point is that when you take Scripture seriously, apart from the tr- paradosis, the tradition, that there are some Scriptures that can cause problems And so that became the issue with Ephesus trying to figure out how do we pull these scriptures together that seem to cause problems. And and the one that hit me this morning, let me read this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5. Now hear this, those of you, you know your Trinitarian theology, but listen to what this says. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony to which was born at the proper time. So in that scripture, if you look at that verse alone, apart from everything else, you've got one God, and then over here you've got mankind, and between God and man, you've got the mediator, Christ Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. So from a theological standpoint, you can see people saying, well, how does that translate into one God, three persons? Um, you look like you wanted to jump in there and make a comment, Monsieur. That's why I thought well, I'd yeah, pause I for mean, a second. I, I spent all my youth on this stuff, you know. But, um, I know, I know. <laughs> well, the man, Christ Jesus, um, we have to remember that the church has taught that man, Christ Jesus, is true God and true man in one person. So uh, we don't want to lose sight of that. Right. Um, So, Which is um, what you're saying. you you got to interpret this within the paradosis, is what you're saying. You've got to interpret this within the paradosis. Yeah, because otherwise, if you throw the 
tradition out or you ignore it, then what I suppose you could argue for is, is um, well, Irenaeus was dealing with these people. He's mentioned them too, the Ebionites. These were, these were formerly Jewish Christian, um, Jewish Christian groups in the early church. And they believed that Jesus only, Christ Jesus only began um, uh, when he was born in Bethlehem. But there was nothing before that. And uh, that's heresy. Yep. And there were a number of groups. You know the titles of the heresies, the one that God, when in the incarnation, was God choosing a man mm-hmm. to come into him. And then just before he was killed on the cross, God came out of that man. Yeah, right. That's, that's a, the yeah. That's the Docetists. There, there was the Docetists, yeah. and yeah. Um, and it isn't just an old problem. I remember, and I don't want to misrepresent this author because I know he's greatly respected. But at the beginning of the 20th century, there was an author who wrote a book called "The Problem of the Historical Jesus," <laughs> Edward Schweitzer. That was one of the first Christian books I read in college when I was on my journey back to Christian faith. And that was the wow. book. I took a course in the problem of the historical. It was titled that, and that was the textbook. And I was going through a great change of, of faith by grace, and I remember just ripping it to the author and said, this is a bunch of bull. But the, the main thing was that author sees Jesus as a great teacher, a great model. Mm-hmm. That's what he was. He was a wonderful philanthropist. You know, he was a great man, yeah. a great teacher. Well, that would fit well with this. We've got God. Absolutely, we've got this great yeah. mediator, this man, Jesus Christ, who's the mediator between God and man. And that's all that he is. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that, and if you, you could say, well, this it says it right there. But if yeah. you take it apart from the paradosis, and that was the argument of Irenaeus from beginning to end, the tradition, the apostolic mm-hmm. deposit of faith. Is the is always the envelope that scripture needs to be translated. You need to correct Absolutely. me in anything, Monsignor. No, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an old football player. So anyway, let's um so very good. Let's let's move on into chapter eleven, section one, bottom of page three thirty-four. And I was thinking, you wanted, you were particularly wanting to comment on this. I was thinking, so let me read well, that. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was interested in this. Yeah, let okay. me read this yeah. this section, and then uh, then I'll pass it on to you for the for the reflection. Uh, Irenaeus writes: Moreover, the Lord hath made it manifest that many prophets and righteous men, foreknowing His advent by the Holy Spirit, prayed that they might come to that time wherein they might see their Lord face to face and hear his discourses. Where he tells his disciples, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear the things which ye hear and have not heard them. Now how then did they desire both to hear and to see if they had not foreknown his future coming? And how could they foreknow without first receiving that knowledge from himself. And how do the scriptures testify of him, except it were one and the same God, who at all times had by his word revealed and shewn all things to them that believe? I just find it, I just find it wonderful how he, first of all, um, the whole core of... Um, the gospel, you know, is the, these early patriarchs and prophets knew it. Um, and what what struck me about this passage is you, the first time um, when they foreknow at the very beginning of that quote, they foreknew his advent by the Holy Spirit. And then um, a few lines down, how could they foreknow without first receiving that foreknowledge from himself? 
and of course there himself refers to Christ. So you have all three persons of the Blessed Trinity active in this work. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. How do the scriptures testify of him except it were one and the same God? Yeah, there we got. We've got the Holy Spirit, we've got Christ, and we've got God. Had by his word. So you have God the Father, who by the Son revealed and shown all things to them that believe. That's right. To me, it's just fascinating that this is all before the consuls define the Trinity in that clear sense. It's not that they didn't believe in it before, but we, we haven't even got to the one God and three persons yet. That battle hasn't been fought. But no, Irenaeus re- clearly believes it. Yeah, I can I can remember the um, the lectures that I used to have to go to years ago, where um, my teachers would speak about how um, the the second and even early third century, but second century Christianity was almost ditheist because they hadn't really gotten around to the Holy Spirit yet. Oh. <laughs> Um, and I, I mean, this is a great example of um, of Saint Irenaeus's profound Trinitarian sense, and the, the Trinity are involved. The Trinity is involved in um, unfolding this work of redemption. Yeah, sadly, some people could say that the I think it was 18th century France was caught up in. A different form of the Trinity because they are always praying to God the Father, the Son, and Our Lady. <laughs> Forgotten that. <laughs> you know, you bump into that all the time. You know, yeah. you know, God the Father, yeah. Son, and Our Lady. We said, wait a second, wait a time out here. You know that <laughs> in the house people know what you're talking about, but but on the other hand, there has been a problem. Most of my life in many of the churches I had, especially as a child. I knew a lot about God the Father. I would hear a lot about God the Son, but the Holy Spirit was ignored. You, you know, I remember when I was um, years, I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Episcopalian. Packer, Episcopalian. Huh? Um, I hadn't become one yet. I was no, still no, but, but that was an Episcopalian Evan- school. Is my point for the audience. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. No, that was in Deerfield. You oh, know. I was thinking it was okay. Never mind. I, I yeah. take that back. I was thinking yeah. it was being, very okay. different. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so Dr. Packer, J.R. Packer, um, his course on the Holy Spirit, he had this marvelous metaphor that has always stayed with me. That you know, as we work, as we move through life, we see the sun ahead of us. So Christ is visible, and further down, way down on the horizon is God the Father. We don't quite see him yet. Where's the Holy Spirit? And Packer said, Dr. Packer said, the Holy Spirit is at your shoulder pushing you forward, (laughs) your guide. I always thought that was a lovely way to, um, lovely metaphor to talk about that. Whenever you say things like that, Monster, it just cracks me up that uh... That you and I didn't get to know each other until later in life, but we had the same teachers. Yeah, because I studied under J.I. Packer too when he was. Did you do it? Too? Yeah, yeah, at Gordon Conwell, he was there yeah. for at least a semester. So, yeah, great teacher, great writer too. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, wonderful man. Yeah. Okay, let's, if we jump over to section two, I I want us to look at this because I think this was fascinating. Um, you know, with all the arguments that Irenaeus has have to put up with these Gnostics and their different view of God. Uh, So he's arguing so often about there is one God and one Son, one Holy Spirit. It's all the same, Old Testament and New. It's like he pulls aside and he deals with a slightly different issue. And he's in this big, long section, he's pointing out the difference between God and man. He goes through the difference between God and man. How do we understand God? And that's always a problem, because mm-hmm. are we as humans being able to see through the only three-dimensional world that we know, which is ourselves and humans, to understand our Creator? And he goes through a long section. 
Mm-hmm. And here's what he says. And he says, Herein God differs from man, that God indeed maketh, but man is made. And while he that maketh is always the same, that which is made must be capable of a beginning and of a middle, of addition and of growth. And God indeed doeth good, but to man good is done. And whereas God is perfect in all things, himself equal and like unto himself, being all light and all mind and all substance and the source of all good things, man, on the other hand, receives improvement and growth toward God. For just as God is always the same, so man also, being found in God, will continually get on towards God. It reminds me of what you said about G.I. Packer, being nudged towards God. Yeah. Since neither doth God ever grow slack in benefiting and enriching man, nor doth man cease to receive the benefit and to be enriched by God. For the receptacle of his goodness and the instrument of his glorification is man grateful to his maker. And again, the receptacle of his just judgment is man unthankful and scorning his creator and not submitting himself to his word. Who hath promised that he will give always most abundantly to those who bear fruit and have more of their Lord's money? Well done in his word, good and faithful servant, because thou hast been faithful in a little. I will set thee over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord, the Lord himself making most abundant promises. So to me, Monsignor, he describes not only the, the major difference between God and man, but he describes it in the way that shows man as always the recipient of God's generosity and love. And so it's our response whether we're going to be thankful or not, as he ends up that description. Yeah, and he's, you know, keep in mind um, what he's arguing against. Um, You've got these Gnostic guys that suddenly show up and say, we've got it. The rest of you missed it, and and um, and he, so what he is trying to do is to show how, in the economy of salvation, or the you know the history of salvation, there is progress and growth, um, and uh, and so he says we should expect that. That's the very nature of created things; um, they have to grow. Um, they have to be capable of a beginning, of a middle, of an addition, and of growth. Um, the human race here, in this case, you know, um, is is growing. You know, if you, that's a really good point because somebody might misunderstand. What do we mean by growing? You know, we're we getting richer. Um, uh, and again, to continue our early discussion. If, if interpreted within the paradosis, within the tradition we've received. The early fathers talked about deification, mm-hmm. becoming like God. In fact, sometimes they were so bold as to say, we become God. I think I just saw Cyril say that in his catechetical lectures yeah, recently. And, yeah. you know, we be, and that's like, whoa, again, we got <laughs> to understand that within the paradosis. We don't become God, but we become div- divinized. Because yes. we become more yeah. and more and more and more like God as we change, putting off the old, putting on the new. And that's what he's talking about here. Receives improvement right. and yeah. growth towards God. Being found in God, we'll continually get on towards God. He's referring to that divinization as we're made sons of God. And as John says in First John, and so we are. So we are sons of God. So- and because his, his burden that he's trying to show is that um, the whole story of the Old Testament is is this journey. The, the, uh, all of the experiences of the Old Testament are to prepare us to welcome Christ. Because um, he came in the fullness of time, if you will. And because things were prepared ahead of time for it. Our conscience were prepared? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say... I was thinking, you know, we're talking about the sort of the history of salvation here, but I wanted to just, uh, I also, every, it comes into my mind all the time when you think about an individual person's spiritual growth, 
that great line that's attributed to John Henry Newman, um, to live is to change, <laughs> to be perfect is to have changed often. Seems like that fits <laughs> in this paragraph. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, because he does, I forget, it was just a couple, um, two pages before, where he says at the top, um, starting at the bottom of 331, for in that the New Testament was known and announced by the prophet, he also was announced who was to order the same according to the decree of the Father being manifested unto men as God willed, that believing in him they might make continual progress. Yes. And that the perfect work of salvation might, might come to its maturity by the testaments. For there is one salvation and one God, but the precepts which form men are many, and the steps are not few which lead man unto God. That's good stuff. It's great stuff, yeah. And you know, it just I just can't help but think um, with immense gratitude of our Jewish brothers and sisters and the tradition that they're from. I mean, that is our family. Um, and yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, Irenaeus lived at a difficult time when they it seemed like they weren't quite sure yet how to handle the Jews. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> of course, remember, um, in that at that time, that's how persecution kind of got started. Is that Christians, well, early, a little bit earlier than Irenaeus, but Christians used to worship in synagogues, and then the, the the synagogue leaders called them out all over the empire and said, "You're not, you're something else," and they yeah. denounced them to the Romans, and yeah. hence um, persecution began at that point. So, on the one hand, Christianity spread because of the Jews that were distributed, the diaspora all around, but uh, yeah, you know that's all got us in trouble too when we because we weren't towing the line when it came to the theology uh, we were holding that's on right. to the to the paradosis we were re received from the apostles. Yeah. Okay, um, let's go down at the bottom of three thirty five. We're moving very slow here. I've got my tractor in low gear here. Uh, at the bottom of three thirty five, to the next paragraph, section three. Just a fascinating statement, Monsignor. He talks about grace. He says, uh -huh. as therefore to such as now bear fruit, he hath promised to give abundantly in the way of multiplying his grace, not in the way of changing his instruction, for the Lord himself abideth and the same Father is revealed, so accordingly to the people of the later times also, did one and the same Lord by his coming vouchsafe a larger gift of grace than that which was in the Old Testament. You know, that's a, that is a, a statement of something that I know as a Christian I've always believed as a pastor and just kind of said, and that was that before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles didn't quite get it because they hadn't been given the grace to understand yet. So we would always write off things. Why didn't the people in the Old Testament understand? Well, they didn't have enough grace yet. You know, why didn't the apostles quite get it? Well, they didn't have the grace. Why didn't the people that Jesus was speaking this sermon on the Mount to get it? Well, they didn't. And that's what Irenaeus is saying here, that the grace was given more abundantly in the new covenant during the age of the church than before. And, you know, that larger gift of grace was, well, as we'll see in the pages that follow now, is to become friends of God, to become children of God. And um, that, that is something that um, the people in the Old Testament, they, they were called a people, but they were called God's people, but his friends, yeah. his family, 
um, that's that's something different. Yeah, there was a, a place earlier we talked about the law was given when we were slaves. Yeah. The law was given when we were slaves, but then and, the new way of the gospel was given during the through Christ for the new covenant. He says that somewhere. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, a, when a slave keeps the commandments, it's out of fear. When a son keeps the commandments of his father. It's out of love. Yeah. yeah, I can hear some, again, of our non-Catholic Christian brothers here, and, well, that's what it says in the Bible, and I, that's our point. You know, Irenaeus is yeah. taking the scriptures and using it as a, uh, to fight the battles of, of the Gnostics that want to misunderstand. And so what is our message today? Well, how do we use scripture to proclaim the paradosis, that which we've received, the truth of it, and so this idea of receiving more grace, but if you, if you look at the wider context, we've received more grace, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're holier than the Old Testament people. It doesn't necessarily mean we produce more fruit. No. Because we still are left with the freedom to respond. Oh, that is so important for St. Irenaeus. That exercise of freedom is everything. Yeah. Yeah, now we um, have the grace that yeah. gets us to understand and hear and even to obey, but it's still the bottom line is that mystery of the both and of God's grace and our freedom. It's not an either or. That's where our separated brethren often get caught in battles with each other. You know, the, the Calvinists and the Arminians, you know, is it God's sovereignty or man's freedom? Which is it? You know, well, it's a both and. It's a both and. And that's the mystery of God's sovereignty. It's a both and. And how do we understand that? Well, we we don't. That's why we look at, well, God's a whole lot different than us. Irenaeus just went through a whole paragraph saying God's a whole lot different than us. And, and earlier on he says, God doesn't always explain everything that he does and don't get caught up in trying to explain that which he didn't reveal to us. Be willing to accept a lot of things as mystery. All right, Monsignor, you another comment on that? Are you ready to, to cruise a little I think bit? we're ready to... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to cruise, and we're jumping over to, I think it's on page 337. You had something, this was something you wanted to make sure that we talked about, and that's in section 4. That's right. Of 11. Why don't you go ahead and take that, because I knew you had a, a part that you wanted to talk about there. Okay, let me see her. Although I do that. want to point out something before we get to, I think you're in the middle of 337, that first paragraph, but I want to point out something just in case somebody didn't just, sometimes you read things and you read right over them. You know, in, in the big first sentence of section four, he says, if therefore he is present, the very same who was announced by the prophets, our Lord God, Jesus Christ. Circle that phrase. Our Lord God Jesus Christ. Irenaeus is <laughs> clearly calling Jesus Christ Lord and God. All, all the titles yeah. are there in one thing. I love to see that in the Greek. That would really be cool. Yeah. You, you know, our Lord God Jesus Christ. And, and if his coming bestow on those who have received him fuller grace and more abundant bounty. All right, Monsignor, that's an introduction to what you want to talk about in that paragraph. Yeah, well, we, we kind of carry on there a little bit. Um, uh, plainly, the Father, too, is the very same whom the prophets had announced. Neither did the Son, when he came, give knowledge of another Father, but of the same who was declared from the beginning, from whom also he brought down liberty. You mentioned this. He yeah. brought down liberty to those who serve him lawfully and with a prostrate mind and with all their heart, but to despisers and to such as are not subject unto God, but follow after outward clean, cleanness to have the glory of men, um, which outward cleanness was delivered to us for a figure of things to come, the law form forming a sort of shadowy outline and by temporal things delineating eternal, 
by earthly heavenly. To such as pretend that they themselves observe more than is commanded as though they set their own care higher than even God himself, while they are full within full of hypocrisy and covetousness and all wickedness, to such he brought perdition forever, severing them from life. And what I noted here on, on about this paragraph is that Irenaeus is talking about how external religion developed. And by that, you know, I mean, you know, taking religion in a mechanical way. So, you know, who I am deep in my heart is not necessarily involved. I'm just going through the motions. I'm doing all the things that um, are required um, by externals. And and uh, this is something that just hits me so hard as we go through this thing. And it's a real, da- I, Marcus, I think it's a real danger for us as Christians and especially as Catholic Christians is this that we don't fall victim to this idea if we do this, this, and this, then God will do this, this, and this for us. Yeah. You know what that is? That That is... Um, the, actually, the Greek word is theurgy. It's the idea that if if you pray the right way um, and please the gods, you'll get what you want from them. Yeah. And it's paganism, ultimately. Yeah, you. on the outside, you can look great and be a mess on the inside. Yeah. That's exactly. what he's... That's, well, yeah. And, and I would, look at what... We're struggling with that right now in the church. It's, yeah. and I, I believe that what we're experiencing now is the end trajectory, the result of not just a number of years, weeks, months, or years, but of maybe even centuries of problems of externalism. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it this last weekend, and I, I was in Mass, and I heard a wonderful preacher, a homilist, gave a great homily on the text, which was on the, the ten virgins, the five who were ready for the wedding feast and the five who weren't. And it was, a you know, he was quoting from the wisdom passage was about wisdom and, uh, you know, being prudent, being ready. And the emphasis of Christ is he can come at any time. So are we ready? He said, watch and be ready, be ready. And, of course, the danger is we, we've heard so many people through the centuries say it's a second coming, and then it wasn't. So we, don't, we, we, we might recite it every Sunday, but how many of us believe that Christ is going to come in our lifetime? We always poo-poo it. I think he's come. Well, I think we're in the end. I don't think he'll come any day soon, but yeah. we're experiencing what Scripture said is going to come before the second coming, which is a lot of bad stuff. And that's what we're going through. But— that wonderful homilist brought up, okay, if if we're to watch and be ready, what do we need to do? Catholics, what do we need to do? If we had a, if we had a week and that's all we had, a day, what would you do? And I'm going to give you his answer, and it's not a bad answer because he said, get to the sacraments, get to confession, go to Mass. Well, on the sur- that sounds great. But we can go to confession and not confess what we need to confess. We can go to Mass and not really get moved. It could be all externalism. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is repentance, is humility, is holiness, is charity, forgiveness of people. To say and go out. Maybe if we had a week to go, we ought to list all the people that we need to go say, I'm sorry to. You know, it isn't just externalisms if it isn't always con- also connected to the internal. As he said, he says it right here. For whom also he brought down liberty to those who serve him lawfully and with a prostrate mind and with all their heart. That's here. I, uh, as we go, you know, a few pages on, I actually wrote down on my notes that what St. Irenaeus is calling for is that we need to develop 
are you ready for this? <laughs> a, a personal relationship with Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. You know, sometimes I think in the history of the church that one of the reasons God allowed for some divisions to happen is for some people to break away and remind us of the things we take for granted. Mm -hmm. I think the Amish did that. The Amish reminded us, God has used the Amish to remind us of our call to simplicity, our call to be holy, our call to... But your evangelicals reminded us of this personal relationship yeah. with Jesus. And Pope Benedict, in his last book, emphasized that. Yes, he did. Yes, yeah. he did. He wanted Catholics yeah. to read the Bible so they yeah. could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the very words Pope Benedict used. And that is the heart of what we're dealing with at St. Irenaeus now. He's calling for that. <laughs> so. Oh, man. I'm looking at the time, and this next section yeah. is a biggie. Do you want to start it, and or do you want to wait? Well, we can oh, tell you what. We should. Let's do section one. I think okay. we can do section one of chapter 12. And those okay. of you, if you think we've all already waxed far too longly on this, you can pause this YouTube and we'll come back to it later. But um, if we deal with chapter 12, section one, in many ways we're dealing um, of about the problem of the elders in the church replacing, adding to, subtracting from the law and replacing it with their own paradosis, their own tradition, and the danger of that. So, Monsignor, I'll, I'll waste yeah, and Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just saying, you know, it's interesting. Now he's got to shift gears a little bit because this is the criticism that the Gnostics are making. They're, they're basically saying to the people, you see, look at what's going on down in the synagogue or look at what's happened in, you know, later Judaism. Um, it's so clearly not what it was. So um, how are we going to account for that sort of thing? And I think what we have here is at the beginning of chapter 12 is Irenaeus trying to explain how this later rabbinical tradition or however you want to call it, um, um, you know, the, the Judaism that our Lord had to encounter um, in his earthly ministry, how do you explain, how, how did that depart from yeah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Yeah, yeah I, you know. The, um, let me start reading that, Monsignor. You yeah. can jump in whenever you want to comment because uh, it's a big section. Um, for from... For, for the tradition of the of those elders, which they pretended to observe according to the law, was contrary to the law given by Moses. So I'm going to read it again. For the tradition of those elders, the tradition of those elders, which they pretended to observe according to the law, was contrary to the law given by Moses. Wherefore also Isaiah saith, Thy vintners mingle wine with water, signifying that the elders mingled with the strict commandment of God a diluted tradition, contriving, that is, a law spurious and contrary to the law, as also the Lord made manifest, saying unto them, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God because of your own tradition? You know, we started the, our discussion today, Monsignor, about the issue of paradosis and good yeah. tradition and bad tradition. Well, this was um, this is exactly what Irenaeus was going to confront. He goes on, Yea, not only did they by perversion make void the law of God, mingling water with wine, but they even set up in opposition their own law, which even to this day is called pharisaical, wherein they take away some things, some things they add, others they expound at their own will, and of these their teachers make special use. And being minded to maintain these traditions, they have no mind to submit themselves to God's law, training them up for the coming of Christ. 
but they called the Lord himself to account for healing on the Sabbath, which, however, as we said before, was not forbidden by the law. And let me say something. That's a really important point that people often, when they interpret that struggle in Scripture, that they don't point out this because the Scripture itself doesn't point it out. You you have to compare it to Leviticus um, and um, and Exodus to, uh, uh, to make that. For themselves, too, in a manner used to do a work of healing in that they would circumcise a man on the Sabbath. But with, but with themselves they found no fault, when by their tradition and pharisaical law, of which I spoke before, they were transgressing the commandment of God and not having that which the law commands. In other words, love towards God. Because they were, and these were the these were the people that Jesus was contending with in his ministry, um, um, and yeah. they had, you know, they kept trying to catch him out, and he had to remind them of what the law actually says and teaches. Um, if you envision, they, I'm sorry. Oh, I see. And what they lacked was love. If you envision Jesus standing on the mount, doing the Sermon on the Mount to the common people. Of course, there in the back rows were scribes and Pharisees taking notes. Um, Blogging. Blogging, yeah. yeah, Texting each other, you know. Can Can you picture them there? 30 Pharisees and each of them looking at an iPhone, you know. And that's the way it would be today. They're twittering. Yeah. yeah, to each other, and they're standing six feet apart with masks on their faces, you know. So there they are. But anyway, so Jesus has the audacity to say, this is what you were taught, but I say unto you. Because the people trusted. They didn't have the scrolls in their houses. No. They would go to the synagogue and they would hear the scroll read and then interpreted by the Pharisees. So these people, that's what they learned. They didn't learn the law. They learned what the elders added to or subtracted from or replaced. And that's what the people thought was the law. And so they would be offended by something that Jesus said. But he had to say, you know, guys, and he would point out their hypocrisy. Hey, you guys can circumcise on Sunday. Why can't we... You know, I mean, that's what Irenaeus is saying, is that, and it reminds me kind of of today, when I won't point out which party I think does this, but points fingers at the other party for doing bad things that they do themselves. Mm-hmm. We're living in a very hypocritical political environment, which is so frustrating. You want to just turn off the news and, like I do. I just watch old Perry Mason episodes. You know, I'm, a, I'm going to a different century where things seem to be more lawful than the craziness we have today. It's coming back. Replacing that which is true with someone's own tradition. It's running rampant. Yeah, it is. It's it's overwhelming how. You know, I was thinking in my prayers this morning, um, what came into my heart was, you know, it's distressing what we're going through. So much bad stuff is happening all around us. That's, but all that is an opportunity for holiness. That's where the saints were found, found. I mean, that's how they found their vocation in difficult times. And I was really encouraged by thinking of poor Irenaeus, you know, trying to hold together the church in Lyon during all of this craziness. and uh, He says, back in that last section, from whom also he brought down liberty to those who serve him lawfully mm-hmm. and with a prostrate mind and with all their heart. You know, that, that describes an attitude that we are to have as Christians, you know, to be liberty to those who serve him lawfully. How do we know if we're serving God lawfully? Well, you've given us our word, but the word alone can lead to confusion. So we've given that in the context of the apostolic tradition. 
which emphasizes holiness and humility and 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 love, as he says, with a prostrate mind. You know what that reminds me of, Monsignor? Is the image of my son Peter when he was ordained a priest. Oh yes. That act of prostration. Yeah. You know, there when my son was ordained, there were four deacons ordained to the priesthood in there. I, that picture of all four of them laying on their stomachs before the bishop of of a prostrate mind. You know, I think I said it last week that the idea of a of a um a high maintenance Christian is an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> a high maintenance Christian is an oxymoron. A Christian is to have a prostrate mind, to have, uh, to be willing to submit. That's what Ephesians 5 is all about submit to one another. The church, the marriage, the the family, the business, all of this is about recognizing one another uh, and with all your heart. I mean, that really is the key from, from, from Adam to Revelation is the condition of our heart. You know, God basically says, I don't want sacrifice. I want your heart. I mean, that's the context here, that's not right. the externals. Yeah. It's what's what's in here. Yeah. And the traditions of the elders. And I would dare say, in the history of the church, there have been some times when the leaders of the church sadly have done, in my view, exactly what the elders did in the Old Testament. Because they've added to and subtracted from and reflected and made things to the point where we kind of forget what the core was. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and to me, a good example of that is the tradition of the necessity of the church for salvation. And the way we understand that throughout the years, well, the time of Irenaeus, when you look at Irenaeus and Cyprian, even up to Augustine, when they talk about the necessity of holding, re returning to the church, the reason was that that was where you found what was true. That's why the church. That's why the apostolic succession, because the truth. But in time, they kind of forget that. It, they think it's the church. It's the truth that the church is whole. The church is a value because of the truth, not the other way around, not the externals. It's the truth. Right. And that would, that's oh, I, what Aaron points out. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's so important that we... Yeah. But I mean, your, your, your wonderful book, Pillar and Ground, will work, you know, well, of the truth. The reason we want our separated brethren yeah. to come home, not because... They don't know Jesus. They likely do. It's not because they don't love the scriptures. They likely do. Not because they don't know God. They likely do. The Holy Spirit, they likely do. They probably, but but when it comes down to, um, are, do they know that the way they understand Christ is salvific? Or is it just taking, he's just a man who's a mediator between God and man. It says that in the Bible. How do they know? that their understanding of Christ, that their understanding of salvation, that their understanding of the Trinity, the understanding of charity is true, unless, as Augustine said, you come home to the church. And you're coming home to the full paradosis of that which we receive from Christ and his apostles. All right, Monsignor, we ought to pause there since we've been waxing eloquently for an hour. Um, sorry <laughs> to the <laughs> audience. I know, really. Um, thank you, folk, for sticking with us, if you did or not. But I, I, I hope next week we're going to pick up on <clears throat> we've just finished where the elders lifted up their own tradition over the law. We might even start reflecting on that as we begin next time. But we're going to begin with Section 2 of... Uh, chapter 12, which really is a very long section. It goes all the way through um, section 3 and, and section 4, and it really has to do with the importance of charity, the, really the essence of charity and love, how, how important that is to uh, this battle that Irenaeus was fighting. Monsignor, would you close this in prayer? Yes, okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, 
help us to put into practice in our lives what we have learned um, in this hour, how important it is that we love. Give us hearts to love you and to serve you obediently and to trust in you always. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. See you next week.